Now, it's one thing to have a bad problem. It's a whole other thing to have a bad problem that people tell you doesn't exist. It's not often that you meet someone who has been a true game changer as an advocate for people suffering from a chronic condition, but I met two people recently of whom I think it really wouldn't be an exaggeration to say they have been trailblazers for raising awareness and kickstarting research for a relatively unknown condition called visual snow. I really think you ought to listen to what these people have to say because not only are there so many similarities between the two conditions, they are eerily similar in fact, but also I think the tinnitus and visual snow communities could learn a lot from each other. This episode is of course made possible, as always, by our wonderful and cherished supporters. If you like our work, please consider providing your support. For as little as $2 a month, you can help ensure that we can continue to put out this type of content. Just travel to tinnitustalk.com slash podcast for the details. Hey everyone, welcome to the Tinnitus Talk podcast. Today we're going to be talking about visual snow. It's a topic we've been wanting to cover for quite some time because um, there's quite some interesting similarities with tinnitus. And I'm very happy to be joined by two guests today. We have with us Sierra Dom. She suffers from Visual Snow herself and is the founder of the Visual Snow Initiative. Welcome, Sierra. Hi, Hazel. Happy to be here. We also are joined by Dr. Peter Goadsby. He is a neurologist and has for many years now been researching Visual Snow. Welcome, Peter. Hi, thanks for having us. All right, let's get started with you, Sierra. I think our listeners would be interested to hear a little bit about your personal journey with visual snow, and maybe along the way you can also just describe what it is, because it's not that well known. A, a lot of people won't know that much about it. Right, and I didn't know much about it prior to getting it myself. <laughs> I have visual snow syndrome. And I've since founded a nonprofit for it, but the journey to get there was interesting. So essentially, I was a university student, and I noticed that when I looked at the whiteboard, I could barely see my professor and what was written on the whiteboard one day. All I was seeing was flashing lights, flickering dots, and static, and it completely obstructed my vision in both eyes. And... At that point, I was extremely alarmed because I had never seen anything like that in my eyes before in my vision. So this prompted me to go to a doctor, an eye doctor, to see what was wrong with my eyes and what I was seeing. But all of the op optometry and ophthalmological tests they did yielded normal findings. So essentially, something was wrong, but they couldn't figure out what it was because all my tests were coming back that my eyes were structurally fine. And even when I would go home and try to lie down at night, when my eyes were closed, I was still seeing the flashing lights, flickering dots, and static. And at that point, they realized that maybe this is a brain issue. It has to do with brain processing and how the brain processes vision. So they sent me to neurologists neuro-ophthalmologist, which is a fancy way of saying brain eye doctor, brain doctors. And those tests that they did also 
yielded normal findings. And at that point, I was very distraught. I couldn't see clearly enough to drive comfortably, go to school. Even I had extreme light sensitivity at this point to the point where I couldn't even look at lamps or the sun. It was terrible. So my life was being very limited. And I turned to Google (laughs) because at this point, the people who were supposed to know what was going on didn't. And it was there that I learned about visual snow syndrome from Googling my symptoms. And even though I had seen some of the top optometrists, ophthalmologists, neuro-ophthalmologists, all the doctors in my area, and they hadn't known what it was, thousands of other people around the world were going through what I was going through and they knew what it was like and they had heard of this condition. So from there forth, I decided to do something about this. It concerned me that my doctors had no idea what this was and there was a lack of awareness for visual snow syndrome. And it is a brain disorder that affects your eyes, right? So your eyes are structurally fine, but it has to do with brain processing. And so, yeah, if you could just describe the array of symptoms that could come with visual snow syndrome. So there's many visual symptoms and non-visual symptoms for visual snow syndrome. For the visual symptoms, the most hallmark or common ones are snow-like dots all over your visual fields, small floating objects or flashing lights, seeing those in both eyes, photophobia, which is a fancy word for sensitivity to light, palinopsia as well, which is continuing to see an image after it's no longer there. So something could be in front of you, but even after you walk away, you're still seeing it, right? You see images within the eye itself, and that's referred to as entopic phenomenon. And there's other visual effects like starbursts, halos, and double vision. I said starbursts, and I wish I was referring to the candy, but it's really just, again, strobe lights in your eyes. (laughs) But, um, Funny enough, right? So coincidentally, going over to visual sy- the non-visual symptoms of visual snow syndrome, the most common one, at least from what we've heard, Peter can correct me, I would say is tinnitus, right? So ringing, humming, buzzing sounds, a lot of people complain of that with visual snow syndrome. Also depersonalization, which is a fancy word for feeling detached from yourself. I mean, people with visual snow literally have a layer between them, (laughs) not literally, but metaphorically, I guess they see a layer between themselves and and the world because of the static and this veil of light over their eyes. So it can make you feel very detached and this can lead to anxiety or depression. People also get brain fog and confusion, dizziness, nausea, insomnia, and other sleep-related issues, as well as tingling sensations in the legs and arms. And they, as well, accompanied by general pain throughout the body. And I'm sure Peter has heard a ton more as well. But the one thing as a visual snow patient, I'd imagine is very frustrating. And I can speak from personal experience as well, is that, yes, the name visual snow syndrome, it highlights the most salient part of the condition, which is the visual part of it, the visual snow aspect. But there's so many other non-visual physical symptoms that make life really difficult. And I just think that that's important to underscore in all of this, that it's not just a simple, oh, you know, I can't see well thing, which isn't even simple. It's it's actually, it's pretty debilitating and horrible, right? You can't, you don't have clear vision, but you also, 
experience so much other discomfort, which is why I think it's important. Anyway, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thanks for explaining that, Sarah. Yeah, I think that's a useful, a valuable addition. Essentially, it's it's phantom vision, just as tinnitus is phantom sound, right? Exactly. They're very comparable. And a lot of people who have visual snow actually have tinnitus as well. So we get a lot of questions about that. And I'm glad that you guys are exploring the overlap because it's very interesting. Yeah. And so you kind of had to self-diagnose in the end, you said, because most doctors don't know what it is. Right. It was to the point where I was printing out information and actually studies that I had seen Peter had done online, printing them out and taking them to my doctors. And they recognized the legitimacy of the problem, right? They recognized at this point that this was a probable thing that I could have, but they didn't know anything about the condition. They didn't know what to do about it. And they'd even told me they'd seen people as well who had this, but they didn't know where to refer them or how to help. So it was then that I started a nonprofit, the Visual Snow Initiative, to fund research and facilitate awareness for visual snow syndrome. And that's where we are today. <laughs> Great. And we'll be talking a lot more about that uh, later. But for now, let's let's move to Peter. Um, Peter, I'm interested because there's I think there's very few medical researchers who focus on visual snow. So why did you become interested in it? I got interested in visual snow because of, I guess, an intersection of, of three things that were timely. As you mentioned, I'm a neurologist. I specialise particularly in headache disorders. And so the most common thing that I'm sent to see is migraine. About a quarter of migraine patients, depends on age, but about a quarter, have what's called migraine aura. Typically, 90% is a visual aura, a seeing aura. And what they'll see are bright, jagged, sharp-edged lines that start in a little part of the vision and then they expand, they get bigger, come towards the centre and then more, more or less mysteriously go away and headache starts. It all lasts about an hour or so. Now, these sparkly, jagged lines are very distinct and because I'm interested in aura, over the years I would, had been sent a number of people who had this continuous dynamic tiny dots all over the visual field. And they'd been sent to me as, and uh, I'd been told they were atypical aura. Although they were certainly atypical, they just weren't, or, or it didn't sound like aura to me at all. And they came from time to time, and I would say to them, I don't think you've got migraine. And uh, that was quite unsatisfactory way of practicing, just to say, I don't think you have what you came to see me about, and not offering much else. I didn't really focus too much on it until I saw two other things happen. I saw a child, about a seven, who had the same sort of continuous dots in the field that he would see on a wall and came along with a diagram of it that he'd made on a, an old, an old uh, computer program called Paint. And you could see these dots. And I thought to myself, wow, he's seven. And what he says is exactly what a 50-year-old with the same problem would say. And I've it just it makes you focus on the fact that it has to be a thing because this was more than 15 years ago so there, there was no sense that the seven-year-old was um uh, going around on the internet and uh, i don't even think ipads were around so that focused my mind and about the same time in january of 2005 
I was at a meeting of the North American Neuro-Ophthalmology Society, NANOS. As Sierra was saying, these are neurologists who are, who are also trained in the eye, so neuro-ophthalmologists. And uh, I was asked to talk about migraine aura because I'm a migraine person. And I did the presentation and I thought, well, I'll talk one slide about this visual disturbance thing and see, because I was interested for them to tell me what they think it is, because I wanted, I, it was just interesting. So I made the presentation and uh, it really was a, a, an explosion in the question time. Almost everything that was discussed was around this visual disturbance. There were, it was like battle lines at one point. There were clearly people in the audience, and we're talking about hundreds of neuro-ophthalmologists now, people in the audience who thought this was a thing and they'd seen it and they weren't sure what it was. And that varied from that group through to the ones who associated it with hallucinogenic use or who, and, and I assured them, of course, that my seven-year-old child was, had not been taking LSD to the best of my knowledge or to the best of his parents' knowledge. That seemed like, a, like such a ridiculous explanation. Through to people who just thought that the patients were crazy. Um, and it, it got to a point where one of the neuro-ophthalmologists got up and said that, well, he didn't think that the patients were crazy because he had this syndrome and he didn't think he was crazy and he certainly didn't take hallucinogenics. And at that, at that sort of point, the rather wisely, the chairman of the session decided that uh, they'd be, had enough. And I walked away from that with quite clearly the impression that this was a thing that it was not understood at all, that you could have who were the literal experts on the subject sharply divided even on its existence, um, that that would be something that I, I, at some point in my career I need to pick up and uh, do something about. I was struck, as an anecdote, that the person who wrote the first paper in 1985, a guy called Grant Liu, was in the audience and he got up uh, and said, well, he'd written about these cases. And he got up and said that he wasn't sure what it was. He didn't really want to write the paper up. His supervisor made him finish it. The referees, the people who looked at it in the journal, thought it was nonsense. But the editor of the journal, a guy called Bob Daroff, very smart, very smart neuro-ophthalmology guy in North America, decided it was a thing and it got published. So the, the early history of the medical side of it is, uh, let's say, uh, fraught, to, to say the very least. Yeah, it sounds like that was a very heated uh, event that, that you attended. Well, it was interesting. Uh, I had subsequently similar uh, discussions with colleagues who thought I thought that taking an interest in this was just madness, frankly, that I'd lost my mind. Right, kind of career suicide, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's funny. I was, I was earlier today doing some some research for this podcast and I came across a website that just reports on medical research basically it seemed like quite a legitimate website and, and there was an article there from earlier this year about some visual snow research and the title of the article was visual snow is real and I just thought that was so telling that in 2020 apparently there is still a need to publish an article with that title yeah yeah it is an extraordinary thing isn't it uh, and, and you can imagine how frustrated frustrating it must be for people who have this problem now, it's one thing to have a bad problem. It's a whole other thing to have a bad problem that people tell you doesn't exist. <laughs> Been there. Yeah. <laughs> you got the T-shirt. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. No, it's it's actually uh, insane to think about uh, when you're going through this firsthand that people 
are legitimately suffering and just being denied. And granted, there's different degrees of visual snow. Like I'm sure with tinnitus, it's the same thing, right? Like there's varying degrees of how how much people can function with with their tinnitus or with their condition. But for a lot of people, it can be very insufferable. And to go to a doctor and be turned away, like, can you imagine like with something like tinnitus that is very much real, like people are just denying the legitimacy of it when it's so blatantly there, especially for the people who experience it. Yeah, that that must be very disconcerting. And I think, you know, people with tinnitus often feel like they're not taken seriously. and, And it's true to a large extent they aren't. But at least they're not being told that, you know, you're making it up. It's all in your head or something like that. For the most part, at least, I think it does happen, but not that often. They definitely still get marginalized. But I think even with visual snow, we're at the point now where people are recognizing that it's credible. We're getting there. (laughs) We're getting there. Peter, can you just tell us a bit more about, you know, what's the current status of neurological knowledge about visual snow and its origins? From an origin perspective comes in two flavors, broadly speaking. People who can't remember when it started, i.e. they they seem to have had it indefinitely, and people in whom it starts at some point, and they can tell you more or less when it happened. That's, that's what we know about the start. It's pretty clear that the problem is a brain problem as opposed to an eye problem. So the outside apparatus, the, the eye, the cornea, the eye, the covering of the eye, the eye, the lens, the um, back of the eye called the retina and the nerve, all of that seems to function. It's the way the brain is handling the information wherein the problem can be found. And the, the key areas are areas of the brain that are involved unsurprisingly in vision and areas of the brain that are involved in how we, how we parse, you might say, how we decide or how the brain decides what it's going to pay attention to in the space in which it, which it is. All feeling information, all the senses have this system of, con- of controlling what they tend to or pay attention to. So most of your listeners, it's a podcast, so not, maybe not everybody, but most of your listeners will have clothes on and they won't, uh, well, some could be in the bath. <laughs> they, they, they won't be, um, it's a wonder of a podcast, and they won't notice, they won't be feeling their clothes. But, you know, if they think about it, it's not like their skin is dead or anything. The skin's working fine. And if they touch their skin, they'll, they'll feel that. So you put clothes on, and fundamentally the nervous system has to ignore a lot of things that's going on so you can focus on the things that you want to focus on. And if that system of control is not functioning properly in the brain, then the brain can the brain will have information that is, you might say, surplus to need. And when we put that together, we have a reasonable idea that the main focus of that is in a part of the visual system. Most of that information I'm saying has come from uh, brain imaging, what's called functional brain imaging. Right. It sounds a bit, Peter, like you're saying that every everyone has visual snow to some extent, but most normal brains, let's say, quote unquote, normal brains have some kind of mechanism to filter that out, that signal out before it reaches our conscious experience. Yeah, wouldn't I try to go so far as to say that? I, I, what I'm saying is that visual processing is not 
normal. And I also, it's also pretty clear that there's an area back in the vision parts of the brain, the vision parts of the brain, the back of the brain, that are not functioning in the same way as people who don't have the, the problem. I'm choosing my words carefully because, you know, the study of visual snow is not, is, is in its infancy, so to speak, really less than a couple of decades. So the, and the brain's a complex thing, which is sort of almost dumb thing to say. I'd hedge around whether everyone has it at some level. I think that's more complex question, but certainly the combination of this control system and the com and the particular part of the brain that is not functioning properly, the sum total of that is what patients recognise as visual snow. I, I wouldn't, I, I don't think I'd want to go so far as to say it's part of norm, normality. I, I, I don't think we really, that we have no evidence to say that. All right. Oh, no, thanks for that, that clarification then. Um, so, yeah, I understand there's very little known for sure, but, but what have you learned so far from those neuroimaging studies you mentioned? We started out by looking at uh, a type of study that, that uses uh, brain metabolism to compare the brain. So the brain uses glucose as its energy and you can label the glucose to do imaging with, a, uh, with, a, with a, what's called a ligand, something you can see on brain scanning. And if you compare people who have visual snow with people who don't, uh, there's an area that's just in the, in the, as I say, in the back of the brain, in a part of the vision cortex that's more active. It's described as being hypermetabolic. That area also is just a little bit larger. And we're talking about a millimetre, couple of millimetres difference, a very small difference. That, that area is overactive. It's a little bit larger. And what's important from the imaging point of view is whether you use this metabolic way of this glucose way of doing things or you take 17 people with with uh, visual snow and 17 don't and you compare their brain millimeter by millimeter or you get you do a another technique a magnetic resonance technique where you look at the chemicals that are produced by the by brain activation what are called the metabolites all of those different imaging mechanisms or modalities all point to the same area. So it's very hard to, to walk away from that if several things point in the same direction. Interestingly enough, in a sort of parallel way, uh, one of my colleagues that I uh, got interested in visual snow several years ago, Christoph Schanken, who's in, in Switzerland, has done work using a, a technique called visual evoked potential. So basically flashlights in the, uh, in the eyes and you look at what the brain electrical activity does. And there's a change in that brain electrical activity. And we think that the area that's involved in that from other work would be this uh, same part of vision cortex. So it's, it's difficult not to think that there is a particular place in the brain where there's misactivity uh, is going on because we've got me uh, several ways of being able to measure it. All right. How far can we actually take the analogy between visual snow and, and tinnitus? We already mentioned that, you know, at, at first glance, it seems quite analogous. One is about sound and one is about vision, but, but they're both phantom perceptions. Do you know how far that 
that analogy actually goes? There's a couple of directions it goes in. If you look at populations, either population-based, so the, there's a web-based study that was done on UK, UK population or large um, work that we've done using, um, again, a web-based approach of patients through, throughout the world, then there's a really substantial group of people with visual snow who also have tinnitus. It's about 60% if you look in a population and about 75% if you look in patients who've approached us to talk about visual snow. So there's the first thing to say is there's a very, very substantial overlap in the symptomatology. And then the other thing to think about is that if you thought about, if you think about what we say when we talk about visual snows, continuous, uh, low-level, non-formed signal, which has some variation, but is fundamentally there all the time. I've avoided using some words, and and the words I use deliberately. If I was, if I then said I was talking about tinnitus, you wouldn't be entirely surprised. And then, if, but if I said I was talking about visual snow, then it is what it is. So then from a manifestation and if you start to think about it the way it behaves it's a remarkably similar phenomenon you might think tinnitus of course in auditory somewhere in the auditory system and uh, of course visual snow in the in the vision in the visual system the other thing that is worthwhile saying is that i think it's unquestionably true that there's potential for learning about either from both one would think so, uh, and I think tinnitus research is a little bit further progressed than than visual snow research. So um, I, I wonder if anyone has tried to sort of leverage that knowledge from tinnitus, even though there's still a lot unknown about tinnitus as well. But when you say leverage the knowledge, I think that yeah, certainly read certainly read around the topic. I don't think that anyone's come up with a unified approach to the problem that's how can i say led to uh in, led to incredible therapeutic breakthroughs that's not a criticism i mean when visual snow we've got nowhere either um these are difficult problems i think you're right leveraging the two together has some utility how we do it however is a, a different question yeah yeah so sierra to to um continue a bit on the topic of tinnitus peter just mentioned about a Two-thirds of people with visual snow also suffer from tinnitus. Do, do Have you experienced it yourself, and or do you come across a lot of people who do? Right. Yes, we actually do. One thing that we do at the initiative is we'll commonly reach out to the community and ask that they share their stories or share their symptoms, because we're in the interest of helping people, of course, but as well as data gathering. That way we can give it to the researchers and hopefully this information benefits them in a way that they can come up with solutions. So we hear a lot from people trying to find correlations between conditions they also have with visual snow. Like they'll say, for example, I have visual snow, but I also have X. Therefore, you might want to explore the idea that X and visual snow are connected. And the most common one, as Peter mentioned, the high percentile earlier, uh, is tinnitus, to be frank. And so I definitely think that the two manifest differently, but the process seems similar. Just one manifests, obviously, in auditory means and the other one in vision, as you guys were saying. Yeah. Peter, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, in, in tinnitus research in the past few years, there's been a lot of focus on 
subtyping with some researchers claiming that, you know, tinnitus is not one condition, but actually various different conditions. And it depends, for instance, on what caused the tinnitus, if it was caused by hearing damage or by, for instance, a neck injury. Is there a similar stream of thought with visual snow that actually um, we might be talking about different types of the same condition? It wouldn't surprise me if there are different ways to get to the final common pathway. I'm struck by the similarity of, broadly speaking, and I mean standing back looking at it, by the similarity of what people say when they have visual snow, no matter what part of the world they come from to say it. So I, I think that there'll be, there must be some common underlying mechanism. Perhaps you get there from different places, but I, I, I doubt whether, I think the underlying biology is going to share more in common than um, not. May I chime in? Sure. We've been trying to pinpoint a specific cause for visual snow, and this is both interesting and difficult to deal with, but it seems that some people feel like they've had this their whole life, right? And they have. They've maybe been born with it, or they've had it for as long as they can remember. And then you also hear from people that have gotten this, like me. I didn't always have visual snow, right? And from my perspective, obviously I'm not a doctor, <laughs> legal disclaimer, but from what I've heard speaking to people who have visual snow, it sounds like it's something that you can maybe be born with or have from a young age and also acquire, right? And people will attribute the cause of their visual snow to so many different things. And I would imagine with tinnitus, it's similar, right? Absolutely. You're looking for that one thing that everybody has in common. And you can say, that's the thing that caused this. And how do we undo it to fix our tinnitus or fix our visual snow? But the reality is people all over the world, different races, sexes, walks of life, ages, they all have different stories. And so for some people, they woke up from surgery with visual snow. For other people, they were under uh, a lot of stress or they remember getting it after an anxiety attack. And some people just got it one day and they had no rhyme or reason for it. But typically... I do find that there's some sort of stress or trauma, whether it's physical or emotional, that has occurred within the patients. And from my personal suspicion, I think that that, that maybe has some sort of like credence in all of this. But that's something, again, that's more left to researchers and doctors. But that's just something I wanted to share. I'm not exactly sure of the process that goes on, but I feel like stress, whether it be emotional or physical, is some kind of a trigger that the body has to endure. We've received questions from a couple of dozen of our members when we told them that we were going to do a podcast on, on visual snow. And, and so a lot of our Tinnitus Talk members, well, not a lot, a lot, but some suffer from visual snow themselves. And actually, the most commonly asked question, which I imagine you guys, both of you guys must hear a lot, is you know, will it get better or will it get worse? And that's also the same thing when people first get tinnitus, they always want to know. And I know that with tinnitus, we can't really answer the question because there are no good longitudinal studies, right, where large 
group of people was followed over a longer period of time. So we don't really know. We can't really answer that question. But what do you say when patients ask you, will it get better or worse? Very often, sometimes I'll hark back to a something I did at the very start. When I was at that meeting in uh, the North American Neuropathologist, since they seem to be since they seemed to be engaged, I asked them if they'd ever seen anyone go blind with it. The answer was no. So you put together almost every neuropathologist in the entire United States and asked them if, that, if it had ever progressed that severely, and not a single person in the room put up their hand to say that they'd ever seen that or heard of that. So I, I start from that point that the natural history is, can evolve but probably has a, a a lot asymptotic. It approaches it it approaches a severity, but probably never climbs over a point, if I can say it that way. The other evidence I would adduce to that is that if you look at in the population work now that got done, the average age of person in the UK population with visual snow is fifty. The average age of the people that we saw in the who are seeking uh, who are interested in the research. Uh, is is thirty. It probably stabilizes and doesn't um, doesn't change. My impression is that if it was there from birth, that it's unlikely to to go away, frankly. And if it was if it came on, then I remain optimistic that it could turn off because it could turn on. All of that said, what you said about tinnitus could easily apply to visual snow. We don't have any longitudinal data. What we what we have is what comes to us and, and what we've done that's uh, what's called cross-sectional. So just looking at a population when you um, when when you do the study. One problem physicians have, and it's true of all conditions that like this that we deal with, is you're captive of who who comes to see you or who's interested. It's unusual for people to contact a physician and say, I'm 100, I was cured and this is how I got cured. That's a very unusual thing. Now, having said this on a podcast, I'm sure I'll get a slew of emails in following weeks that'll tell me how people got cured. And I'm frankly interested to hear that happen because I think that is a rare event. Yeah. Sierra, has, has, have your symptoms changed a lot over time or are they quite stable? So... <laughs> Along those lines, I was somebody young who got visual snow, and a lot of young people do as well, despite what studies say. I understand. Um, but for me, when I got my visual snow, my primary concern was that it was degenerative and that I would potentially be going blind. And that was a huge blow to what I had planned in my life. I'm very much a productive person and a go-getter. And I think like, even if you're not, anybody has big dreams, right? And I wanted to be around to see them literally and figuratively. <laughs> so I didn't know what was going on. And when I went to doctors, they couldn't really tell me anything about what was going on because they didn't know about visual snow. But they also couldn't tell me that they didn't know for certain that I wouldn't go blind, right? So this was a fear I lived with for a long time, years actually, of uncertainty before speaking to Peter and learning more about this condition and talking to experts. And I find that my condition personally, and I think I can speak for other people, we have sort of a baseline, right? We have our version of what normal is. 
And maybe it could be that way for tinnitus as well. Like people have sort of their usual tinnitus. And then there will be times maybe when you're under stress or you're paying more attention to it or for no rhyme or reason, it just gets worse, right? So we'll call that a flare-up. And there will be flare-ups. And then you might think, oh my God, this is so much worse than normal. Am I going to be this way forever? And what we find is that it tends to stabilize and go back to baseline, your normal. And there might even be times when it's... It's the opposite where it's less severe than normal and you wonder, oh, is it getting better or is and what did I do differently that that made my visual snow or tinnitus less noticeable or or less severe or whatnot. And th there is a fine line between the mental, emotional games you have to play with this and asking yourself, is it actually better? Am I having a better day today? Therefore, I notice it less. Is it actually worse? physically or is it more just um, emotionally I can handle it better or worse today you know it it's a total physically and mentally taxing condition to deal with sometimes which I don't think people understand but yes the short of it is it can get it can get worse and it can get better sometimes but you find that you stay within the normal and obviously the goal long term is to get to the point where we have enough research or that we can develop solutions to make a permanent change hopefully and but i will say as as daunting of a task as that is you certainly aren't going to get any closer to reaching your goal by doing nothing right so that's why you need to at least try yeah absolutely peter is is anything known at all about you know different triggers things that that could influence visual snow make it better or worse things like i don't know diet lifestyle you know medication any of those things that's a very considerably frustrating area i think sierra just described it very well the the because the condition has underlying variability the pursuit of what caused the variability in individuals can send them really uh, almost cra uh, crazy with frustration. So very, very straightforward answer to your question is no. I don't know of anything in particular that will improve it. I, I can tell you that a, a way of making things worse, that I can tell you, recreational drugs, particularly this, um, the hallucinogenic sort of drugs, that's a spectacularly good way. That's some, when we looked at oh, 700 odd people who'd um, 700 odd reports of things that made things better and things that made things uh, worse that we collected. Overwhelmingly, the, the number one thing that made things worse is uh, recreational drugs. I don't want to be sound like some sort of a person who wants to ruin Christmas, but you know that, that is a very good, <laughs> uh, that hallucinogenic drugs is a spectacularly useful way of making things worse if you want to do that. One of the most frustrating things for no, no effect, vitamins, nutraceuticals, things like that, almost invariably had 90% um, no effect. Same as other things, but let me say this, something like antidepressants, most likely to have no useful effect at all. And in about maybe 15% will make things worse because this is just not, it's not about mood. It's not a phenomenon of, of depression. You know, we, you don't have to be, a rocket scientist to advise people to have a 
healthy lifestyle because it's good for their it's good for them and if they're young and they have a healthy lifestyle they'll live younger they'll live longer and hopefully they'll see a a treatment or a cure for the problem so i encourage them to to do that but putting that aside no it's worth saying that light sunlight can be quite uncomfortable um, light sensitivity can be a problem and um, the symptomatology can be symptomatology can be quite troublesome in that way but from the point of view of the actual natural history of the condition I don't, short of um, recreational drugs there are a few ways that you can make things worse for yourself to add on to what peter is saying conversely i would say as somebody who has visual snow even though it's a little discouraging when they tell you oh well there's nothing we can pinpoint that's going to help you specifically no magic pill no supplement etc to be honest because it took me a long time to get diagnosed i was kind of put through this wild goose chase of experimentation of well let's try this supplement let's try this diet let's try avoiding this doing that and it was so stressful and then to find out that those things had no impact but also when you're trying to figure out why you have visual snow you might attribute it i know people do this a lot to to multiple things in your life like oh perhaps it was might sound ridiculous but perhaps it was the energy drink i was taking perhaps it was that i was doing x or y and then you feel like you have to then limit your life because you live in fear that maybe the things that you've done up to this point till you got this or what caused it. So to a degree, it can be reassuring knowing, hey, yes, it's good to live a healthy lifestyle, but maybe you don't have to avoid legumes because your doctor said that might cure your visual snow anymore. You can just eat them. You know, that's a very petty example, but you understand what I mean. There is a degree of freedom at least there. Sometimes physicians can be scared of saying to someone what they don't know and can't do because there's this kind of mentality that physicians should be able to do and you know i find i find sometimes people are a bit angry with me when i say it but if you're just honest with people you know in your life and if you sell if you say that there's nothing you can do at the moment at least it's honest (laughs) i think putting people through a range of uh, jiggery pokery to get nowhere just doesn't help anybody you know it's okay for it's okay to say i don't know I don't think I think it's not okay to make up some sort of fairy tale. Agreed. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I think it does happen often. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. Also with tinnitus. Well, that's a problem where there's where there's where there's where there's a lack of knowledge. People make speculation. I mean, we've been doing it since uh, the since prehistory. You know, there was an explanation for why the sun came across the sky and it was uh you know it was apollo dragging it across well that's a pretty good explanation and it worked for a few hundred years but then people sort of understood that that was not a thing i would prefer to skip the greek mythology and roman mythology explanation and 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 you know try and get stuck in to make to collecting what i'll call real data as far as i can to um, get this on a serious uh, footing, and I'm, I'm sure tinnitus people think the same sort of way that it's essential that you get to. If you can get to the biology, the more you understand something, the more chance you have to be able to rationally create a, a, a therapy. Absolutely, yeah. We have to understand the basic mechanisms, and um, doctors will tell patients, "Don't go looking online for answers because there's a lot of misinformation." But unfortunately, misinformation is also sometimes spread by doctors themselves. 
Yeah, well, there's good information online and bad information online, just like there are physicians who are excellent and ones who are a little bit, you know, could do with reading a little bit more. Exactly. And the, the if, 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 if a person comes to me and's read everything online, I don't really mind. Uh, you know, for great, we can discuss what 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 they've read. But the, you know, the you know, one of the things I like doing, like working with the Visual Snow Initiative, is that you know you've got high quality information, so I can send all patients there, and I know that they'll read reasonable things and that they won't be you know taken advantage of and and so on. I'm sure that the, uh, in tinnitus you have the sa same sort of thing. The important thing is a partnership between researchers and interested patient groups so that the pe people know what's going on. And it's frustrating to have a problem that's not understood. It's worse to have a problem that's, that's not even recognised uh, properly. Absolutely. I know that the Visual Snow Initiative recently launched uh, its, its own kind of treatment. I think it's called the Visual Imagery Project. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about what that is, how it works, uh, what, what uh, you know, data have you been able to gather so far on, on whether it works or for whom? Right. So the Visual Imagery Project is kind of self-explanatory, secondary to what our global research team is doing, which Peter is a part of that. We wanted to give people potential relief in the meantime. And by exposing people to certain visual imagery, hence the name, we've found that some patients experience relief. And so we wanted to give people an opportunity to see if they too could find relief. And research of substantial value cures take time. I mean, you can look at what's going on right now with uh, COVID-19. <laughs> and we have the entire world trying to work on something and it's still presenting difficulties, right? So imagine for uh, visual snow, little old us <laughs> working on it. But essentially, while that type of research, research of that magnitude, we're talking cures, takes time, we wanted to offer people something in the meantime that could give them relief. So while it may not it, ideally, it would be great if it did, but while it might not fix the problem entirely, it can lessen symptoms. And so that's the type of solutions we're trying to offer people right now through the Visual Imagery Project. And we have another one launching soon as well. We've consulted two different doctors who've been collaborating using visual imagery as well, the different kinds. And then from that data that we gather, we try to enhance it or make it better based on the feedback that people give us. And we provide that information to researchers and they can explore potential correlations or important things. Yeah. That's really impressive um, and um, great that you guys are trialing this. I imagine you're viewing it as a kind of trial to kind of just get that real life feedback and, and see what what works and what doesn't. Yeah, I mean, worse comes to worse. Your visual snow stays the same, but at the same time, Best case scenario, you get some relief in the meantime, and that would be great for people. But we are also gathering data, so even if it doesn't help you, you're helping the cause and giving that information to us that, that we can then use for research, and it will lead people potentially in the right direction, which is very helpful. So you're doing a good thing for yourself and for, for visual snow awareness and research as a whole. 
Yeah, hopefully, if, if people are listening uh, and they're interested to take part, they will. I, I imagine they just can just go to your website, right, to find more about this. Yeah, exactly. They can just go to visualsnowinitiative.org and all the information's there. We have pop-ups on our site with the latest information. And if you want to learn more about visual snow syndrome, what's going on, you can just log on. <laughs> we also have a diagnostic criteria. That's one thing that if you have visual snow or suspect you do and your doctor doesn't know about it, you can just print out our diagnostic criteria that's available on our website and provide it to your doctor. And that's how you can get a diagnosis if there's not a formal doctor in your area. But we also do have a resource now, a directory of doctors. So if there is a doctor in your area, you can just go onto our website and find the closest one. And we're adding more on. Oh, that's very useful. Yeah, I've, I've uh, well, I've reviewed your website. It's, it's full of very useful resources, great information, very well-produced informational videos and, and, and things like that. So definitely encourage people to, to take a look there. Well, thank you. Likewise, you guys have done an amazing job as well. So please check them out. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate, appreciate it. But what do you know, Peter, about um, what would be the science behind this or, or are there any theories behind this? how looking at certain images could potentially disrupt the visual snow signal? Yeah, I think the idea would be to, to, to get the brain to track to a different signal. Your brain can only do a limited amount of things. You can't, um, you can't, you only have a certain amount of visual bandwidth, you might say. So the concept is to engage the vision system in, in a way that would diseng that would allow it to disengage, you might say, the visual areas, the visual areas that are involved in visual snow, if I've understood what's going on correctly. All right, yeah. So theoretically that could work, but uh, I guess it's there's just not much known about what exactly what kind of visual input that would require or Well that's precisely correct. The problem is if you wait for the perfect solution then you might wait a long time. I don't, I mean, you know, as, as, as Sierra said, research doesn't happen overnight, but every morning people wake with their problem. So trying to do, trying to, you might say, manipulate the visual system to improve things, it doesn't have any downside, downside to it. And if you could work out what type of manipulation was useful, you could back translate that into how that works. So, I think having a number of um, irons in the fire, they say, a number of ways to try and advance this problem is is a really smart way of doing it. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about treatments in general, Peter? Are you aware of other researchers, maybe companies? I don't know. Is anyone, you know, who is actually trying to develop treatments? Oh, I don't know of any companies taking a vague interest in the subject, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised somehow, but yeah. Well, yeah, you say that, but, um, you know, population estimates will put the, you know, the, will, will tell you that the number of, if, if the first thing that's been, if the current estimates are anything like correct, then you're looking at maybe 2% of the population with some form of the problem um, with this, the syndrome and maybe 3 3.5% of the population. I'm talking about the UK where it's been done on a population base. But if, if even 2% was correct, 
that's a staggering number of people. And if you, you don't have to have a big collect, you know, a big proportion of 2% of the population. If you had a, you know, if you have a therapy to have a way forward. So I think part of the problem is that industry simply hasn't gotten on their dial. Uh, number one. Number two, of course, is that industry are great at scaling up. So look at the COVID areas are very good looking at this. You've got the academic people working out how to make a vaccine. But once it's once they've worked that out, it's the large companies that can take, you know, enough vaccine for five people and turn it into five million because they they can do scale up. That uh, I think it will be hard to get industry involved in the problem if they don't know what to scale up. But if you, if we knew what to scale up, I think they'd be uh, all over it because it'd be a there'd be a substantial opportunity. So no industry at the moment. Yeah, but they're kind of someone else would have to make a breakthrough first, and then industry would pick it up. Oh yeah, well that's the way it works. I mean, fundamentally, academic researchers work things out, and industry takes the step of of turning that into something large scale, and that uh, seems to work reasonably, reasonably efficiently. Don't take that as a political statement, just as an observation. So on that note, what do you think are currently the most exciting strands of, of research in visual snow? Have there, has there been anything assembling some kind of breakthrough or new insights? I have to say, given that someone told me 15 years ago the problem didn't exist, I have to say, I think that the fact that you can start to point to which parts of the brain are likely to be involved is a, is quite a lot of progress from, you know, for something where nothing is supposed to, nothing, nothing is supposed to happen. It's a bit like asking, you know, if you, if you wanted to, re if you have a city and you need to repair the, a, a dysfunctional uh, streetlight, if you don't even know which city to go to, you're never going to repair the light. But if someone gives you a map and tells you the GPS coordinates of the light, then you've got a sporting chance of going there and working out what's going on. I'd like to characterize brain imaging as taking us from vaguely wandering around the city to knowing which street to get to. That's a, that's a very big start. I think the next big thing will be to understand the nature of the disturbance in that part of the brain. Is it, oh, is it too active? Is it too excited? Or is it not turned off enough? Is it not inhibited enough? Because that gives you, that's a kind of fork in the road. Do you dampen excitement or do you increase inhibition? Do you turn things down? And that, that's, that kind of fork will tell us where to, where to head next. I, I think that's the most, you know, for me, that's the most interesting thing because it tells me it's like the next level of iteration to know where to go if I start, if you want to then start to look at what the, um, what the therapeutic options are. Mm. I think in tinnitus, uh, what's often cited as a major obstacle to, you know, big pharma companies and such investing in it is the lack of an objective measure for tinnitus. So there's no, you know, objective test, a blood test or whatever that you can do to objectively demonstrate that someone has tinnitus and how severe it is. So you have to rely on questionnaires and things like that. Is that similar with visual snow? You know, if you ask me whether it's similar, that there's there's no there's no measurement of it. Then the answer is yes. That's I have to say, I might get into trouble for saying this, but that sounds to me like a bit of a flat Earth policy, uh, flat Earth thinking. Um, just because you can't 
do a blood test. But the fact that you have to rely on what someone says, I don't necessarily take that as a disadvantage. When I see someone who's got a problem uh, and they tell me it's a bad problem, I don't, you know, a first pass would be just to believe it because it's the simplest thing to do. Most people don't come to see you because they're crazy and they've got nothing better to do. They come to see you because they're bothered. I think that if you need to measure, if, if you want a measurement to do it, I understand, I understand why people say that they think that makes it easier, but I, I'm not sure that it does. I'll give you an example. We don't really have any way to measure pain objectively. Hmm. You know, I can say I've got bad pain. What does that mean? It means absolutely nothing. Um, I can say it's really severe. It's my, it's my characterization of it. If you get a treatment that stops it, it doesn't matter. You can measure it any way you like. If it's gone, it's gone. It's like, that's a thing. That concept has not stopped us developing um, treatments for, for pain problems. If you need to measure something at some level with these sensory things, it probably means you haven't quite cottoned onto what it is. If you could turn this thing off, people would just tell you it was turned off. You know, a, a two, a dialing it down a little bit seems just to, have, to be setting the sights a little bit, uh, little bit too low. So I, I can see why people say what you just said, but I, I do think if we, had, if we really understood what we wanted to do and we could turn it off, what do you need to measure? Because, you know, zero is zero. I'm less enamored of this need for the biomarker thing. I mean, I live in the headache world where I don't have a biomarker, but I can tell you if someone's headache goes away, it's like gone. You know, full stop, new paragraph, it's just gone. And no one argues whether gone is good or not, because gone is obviously good. And you don't need a, to have, you know, you don't need an expensive blood test if something's, if something's gone. So I know that's a slightly heretical view of the world, but there you go. No, I think a lot of tinnitus patients are right now applauding what you're saying and the visual snow people for sure as well. Uh, yeah. Sierra, can you talk a bit about what the research world looked like when you first, you know, got involved in this and, and what you guys at the Visual Snow Initiative have tried to do to stimulate research. Oh my goodness. Wow. That you're taking me back to a dark era. I was going to say that's like the, that's the dark age, isn't it? That's like what they call antediluvian. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The fact that we had to, as a patient, as patients, argue that this was legitimate with doctors is extremely troubling. Regarding the blood tests, I think it is a lovely sentiment to just, and it's also convenient, a convenient, lovely sentiment to think, oh, a simple blood test or a simple black or white answer is going to reveal if I have something or not. But I find that in life, things are often a gray area. And the, the reality is as well, right? we wouldn't even have come across these blood tests or or done any of these exams in the first place if people didn't speak out about their symptoms to begin with. So why is it that those people who first spoke out, right, that was given validity and then they created tests to to look into these conditions. But for people with visual snow, here we are crying and it's like, all right, well, you know, there's nothing we can do. And it's like, no, we need to develop these solutions. We need to develop ways. And in if, even if there isn't like a like a positive or negative test for visual snow, you need to work with patients, right? We rely on communication and feedback to even develop tests in the first place. So, but regardless, I guess we'll backtrack then, right? To what you were saying. I just wanted to add on 
that like feedback's important. Yeah, yeah. You were asking about uh, how research was looking a few years ago. Yes, and what you guys have tried to do to stimulate research. When I first got Visual Snow, it was not only difficult to deal, and I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this with any condition, right? Uh, well, mostly Visual Snow intended us, but it's it's one thing to be dealing with the condition itself, right? The visual symptoms, the non-visual symptoms, auditory, non-auditory symptoms. It's one thing to be dealing with all that and not feel good. So it's one thing to not feel good, and it's another thing to be marginalized. It's another thing to be told You feeling good doesn't matter because there's nothing we can do. You feeling good doesn't mean anything to us because we don't understand why you don't feel good. You know, when you're growing up, you're told, okay, you have a wound, you put a Band-Aid on it, you're sick, you go to the doctor. So what do you do when you're sick, but the people who are supposed to help you don't even know what's going on, right? And that prompted me to not just accept that because I was told by doctors, we know something's going on, but we don't know what to do. Go home and try to live your life. You need to accept this. And I didn't accept that. And that didn't cut it for me. So I started looking for people who were willing to work with me here and willing to help. And that's how I came across Peter was actually because Peter was someone who was doing research. It's how I came across Shankin. It's how I came across Victoria Pelek, coming across Joanne Fielding, Owen White, Yasser Khan, all the people that we now work with as part of our global research team, which is been uh, adding more and more people to it, right? But those were the originals and they were kind of the major players and the only players <laughs> that were doing anything. And so from there, I realized there was a lot of misinformation and I'm sure with tinnitus too, like people have their own conspiracy theories about what helps and how it started and the genesis and where research needs to go. And it was all very confusing for me. I had no idea who to trust or who to look to, but I knew that these experts were invested in research and wanted to help. And so that's why the Visual Snow Initiative wasn't a nonprofit to begin with. We were just a group of people organizing a conference to present the body of current and valid research about visual snow. So from there, we hosted a conference in San Francisco a couple years ago, a few years back, where we had a panel of experts and we presented the current body of research. So that was our first attempt to bring sort of current research, but dispelling the truths and non-truths about visual snow to the masses. And then from there, we got so many questions and so much interest after the event. And people were asking when we'd organize another one and so on that we decided to start a nonprofit to fund research directly. And prior to that, yes, people had done GoFundMes for them personally, but I'm I'm I founded this nonprofit on behalf of everyone. And everyone who has visual snow should benefit from the awareness we're trying to raise and the money we're trying to raise for research as well. So we've reached out as far as strategy. We've reached out to the medical community, the scientific community, and, you know, uh, even beyond that, just trying to rely on the power of celebrity. But I find that the power really lies within the people. As someone with visual snow, like speaking out is the best thing that you can do, you know, in terms of raising awareness and for funding research. Like years ago, I didn't know where, where to put my money to fund research. And I didn't even know if that was possible if there was a place to put it and who was doing it. 
Now we know that we have a global research team, right? Who are approaching this from every way, looking at every strategy and the money goes directly to research. It's it's really simple. So we've simplified the process as well as gotten research back up and running in a cohesive way all over the world. I think it's very, uh, very impressive, Sierra, what you guys have achieved and uh, also raised quite a bit of money for research, if I recall. Also very impressive. Thank you. You're very kind. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's very difficult. To, we've found it very difficult to fundraise for, for tinnitus, even though so many people suffer from it. It's somehow it's not a cause that many people seem to want to give to. So, yeah, um, if you have any tips to share. <laughs> Certainly, we could talk about it, of course. The, the reality is, and this sounds... This sounds very pessimistic, but I want to be honest and just speak my piece here. I really think that this is a matter of until it happens to you, until it happens to someone you know or someone you love, it's not on your radar. And I'll be very honest. I didn't care about what visual snow syndrome was before I got it, and I didn't know what it even was. And even when I had it, I still didn't even fully understand it, right? But it's our responsibility to look out for each other, especially now that we're like a community and we can collaborate with other people, like how we're collaborating right now. We come from very, very similar place in our mission and also our condition. And I, I'm, I'm proud of how far we've come. And I'd like to think that humanity has some level of compassion. And I ask that people put themselves in, in somebody who's going through this as shoes. And you know what? It might not be your son, it might not be your daughter, but it's someone else's son, it's someone else's daughter, and it could easily happen to you. The thing with visual snow and even with tinnitus, it's just lovely, is that they don't discriminate. They affect people of all walks of life. And the reality is, even though it hasn't happened to you yet, it could very easily happen to you or someone you know. So it is relevant. And I do think for anyone who has a sense of like ethics, morals, and civic responsibility, it's something that they should look at. There are so many conditions that are underrepresented and marginalized because the general interest maybe isn't there, but it should be. But it's not our job to wait around sitting on our asses, excuse me, for people to start caring about us. You have to show them why they should care. And the biggest issue with visual snow that I found is with fundraising, it wasn't really about oh, here's this condition you know about that's very debilitating and people can't see clearly, right? Like, help us. No, they had no idea what it was. So we had to simultaneously educate and then fundraise, which was a challenge. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I very much relate to your call to action that, you know, it doesn't help to just sit around and complain that no one takes you seriously, as as horrible as that is. But we all, all have to, you know, unite and, and do something about it. I think visual snow and tinnitus face very similar problems when it comes to public perception. They're both conditions. Obviously, you can't see, you can't tell that anything's wrong with the person invisible illness there we go <laughs> yeah yeah and and it's just very hard to imagine if you don't suffer from it and then with tinnitus there's also the issue that a lot of people suffer from it but they have a very mild variant so very often when you say when you try to explain how much you're suffering from your tinnitus 
the person will say, oh, but my uncle has that and he's totally fine with it, doesn't bother him at all, you know, that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> right. And good and good for your uncle. I have, you know, but at the same time, that doesn't delegitimize or what you're going through. Like, I've had people... <laughs> And granted, they mean well, right? But I've had people tell me when I explain visual snow to them, they're like, oh, I have that too. And it's very probable they could, right? Uh, a lot of people do. I've come across people that have had it in my real life, and that was really powerful. But they'll say they have it, and they'll be like, yeah, you know, the little squiggly lines you see, they go away. What are you talking about? I'm like, oh, you're talking about floaters. Floaters. Very different. Yes, that has to do with the virtuitous gel in your eye and all this other stuff. Very, very different stuff. But, you know, people are trying to relate. And I, I think that that's perfectly fine. Right. But it's our job to educate people on the varying degrees of severity. But just because research in these areas are daunting doesn't mean it shouldn't be attempted. Like nothing truly good and impactful can come easily. And I think it's frustrating for people who are going through this, right? That not only are, it, it, it's an ongoing process, right? The solutions haven't been created yet. It's frustrating for them to sit by, but I always tell people finding a solution for problems like visual snow and tinnitus, right? In an idyllic sense, like a cure, it's going to take a significant amount of time, right? And that's something that I don't want to hear as a visual snow patient, but it's the reality and I need to accept that. And in the meantime, that doesn't mean that other things can't be done and we can't find ways to manage symptoms. And I'd encourage people if they're dissatisfied ever with their current situation, they can easily go out and, and advocate for awareness and fund their research and reach out to doctors. It's not like we have to sit by as well, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Peter, we've talked a bit about, you know, how how far research has, has come in a uh, relatively short amount of time, but also still a long way to go. What do you think is really needed uh, at this point to give a big impulse to visual snow research? Is it just funding, for instance, you know, or is it large amounts of data? Like, what's really needed? I think to make great headway in anything you is a very simply a resource question. It's worthwhile saying that um, when the Visual Snow Initiative came along, we'd really gotten to a point where we would have needed to stop what we were doing um, because there was just no money about to do it. So the fact that it's continued uh, is a tribute to what's been itself as a tribute. I think all the people involved in visual snow research would say this is a tribute to what the visual snow initiative is doing. The next level will be to leverage what can be done into standard funding mechanisms, which is code for saying the various um, government uh, foundation, particularly government funding, um, in the US, the obviously the NIH, different and then different. There is there's a European meds, a Euro, what's it called, the ERC, European Research Council, and I guess Finland has a has a government um, body. You need to be able to leverage into to leverage into that to make the kind of quantum leap you might say, because the the, the conditions of its time in the sense that we have techniques to explore it, 
if we'd have started doing this 20 years ago, 25 years ago, the brain interrogation, brain imaging techniques weren't really, weren't what they are today. So that's, it's timely. Techniques will only get better. And with reasonable support, progress will be made. So I, I think it's more to do with, it is to do with just a quantum that you can put into something. That will lead to bigger data arrays and so forth. But, you know, if we had a huge data array at the moment, um, we'd be stuck with, uh, we'd need resource to do something, to, to pursue that from a research perspective. So To analyse all of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I do think it's about res uh, resource. Because I've been, uh, Sierra's mentioned just about everyone in the world who's really doing any work with visual snow. The fact that she can say it in a, uh, without drawing breath is a bit... <laughs> Concerning. Well, it's a bit depressing at some level. Yeah, but it's better than no one. I agree it's better than no one, um, but you could divide the number of people who've probably got the problem by a hundred if it was that much, you know, much, much less common. I, and I could find you many, many less common conditions where you'd have to stop and draw breath to list all the people who are involved. In. So there's a great disproportion between what's thrown at the problem and the size of the problem, I suspect. Yeah, that it, it, it is quite puzzling, isn't it? And um Again, uh, quite similar to tinnitus. I know there's a lot more people doing tinnitus research, but there have been um, studies done comparing tinnitus against conditions that have a similar socioeconomic burden. So I think diabetes and depression, things like fall in sort of in the same bucket if you simply look at the socioeconomic burden of the disease. But those conditions or diseases receive, you know, dozens times, it's not just two or three times more funding, but it's like 20 or 40 or 50 times more funding. Yeah, and of course, the problem is you don't want to be advocating to spend less on diabetes. No one in their, no one in their right mind wants to do that. The problem is how one, how one cuts the pie, uh, so to speak. It's a very difficult thing. Uh, of course, what Sierra said, it's really important. Advocacy is important here. The people who take these sort of decisions, uh, governments and so forth, they need to hear from people on the on the ground, so to speak, who have the problem that they're not satisfied and they want something done. The advocacy in that way is a very, very great partner to uh, advancing a, a clinical problem. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And uh, Sierra, that's also one of the questions that came from our one of our tinnitus talk members. What can patients do to help raise awareness of this condition? Uh, I know you already talked a bit about it, but do you have specific advice if people want to help raise awareness? Right. That is a great question, and we would appreciate any interest in raising awareness. The great thing about this is that raising awareness can be entirely free. <laughs> While from a hopeful perspective, and as the founder of a nonprofit, I obviously would encourage people to donate if they want to facilitate visual snow research. I understand that financially that might not be feasible for everyone, and that's okay, right? That doesn't mean that you still can't have an impact. And so I would say that because uh, social media is an international means of communicating, feel free to speak out online. I would encourage people to do that as many already have. We have visual snow communities where people can share their symptoms and communicate with each other, which is great. 
But what about the people who don't know about this yet, right? And there are a ton of support groups out there and organizations that work with rare diseases. They work with invisible chronic illnesses. And I think that sharing news about visual snow with them could potentially make waves. Also, just publicly talking to your friends and family, even within your small community, right? I understand in the larger picture, maybe that that might not have as great of an impact, but even something so simple as getting people talking and having more people understand and saying, hey, I have a friend who has that and whatnot. But in terms of uh, medical awareness, please share your symptoms with your doctor and you can go to our website and print out the diagnostic criteria that we have and they can diagnose you. I think education within the medical community is very important for visual snow and Peter can attest to that, of course. Personally, it was, it spoke volumes to me. I went to see an optometrist recently and the, the opto- that was purely just for my eyeglasses. And they asked about my previous medical history and I, you know, every now and then I'll I'll tell them about visual snow if they're curious, but the the optometrist already knew what it was. And I was really surprised. And he says, yeah, he goes, you know, I've seen people that come to me and talk about that and I have to refer them elsewhere. But, uh, you know, if my patients never said anything to me, I wouldn't have even looked into it. And I went home and started Googling their symptoms because I wanted to help. And even something so simple as that, right? So speaking out is very important online and in the real world as well. I think that I'm uh, speaking as an observer, and I'd agree entirely that education's important. I was struck, chap, um, Israeli ophthalmologist, neuro-ophthalmologist, contacted me to say that he'd seen a case of visual snow and read what we'd written and uh, presented it to the their annual meeting and was struck by, this is the first case that had been presented at their meeting ever and was struck by how many had heard, had a little bit experience, but no one really had heard of it before. All education is good. I also think that in terms of advocacy, governments and, and external people to a problem take great advantage of what I'd call divide and conquer in the sense that if there's perceived argument within a community, it usually it usually means externally no progress is made. If someone's un, if if advocates are unhappy about one particular aspect of whatever's being said in the visual snow world, it'd be better to discuss that internally, but have a pretty joined up message outside. Because if you have five messages when you speak to anyone in authority, they'll tell you to go back and they'll 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 listen to them all, say they're all valid, <laughs> and then tell you to work out which one's the most valid. It's a classical way of doing nothing. You mean like a cohesive? Yeah, exactly. If you only go with one message, then they've got to actually address the thing you say. It's a, so, you know, it's hard because this is a new condition and people get frustrated with the directions of traffic and so forth. But I'd really encourage people who wanted to advocate to, to work out very few messages and at least to the outside world have a joined up approach because it makes it harder for people to squirm away from what you want. I think that's excellent advice, Peter. Uh, I recognize immediately what you're saying and probably maybe, Sierra, you can tell me if it's the same in the visual snow community. But I think in the tinnitus patient community, there's different camps, if you will, maybe two main ones, you know, the ones that are saying tinnitus is a debilitating condition and we need a cure, full stop. 
and the ones that are saying, oh, you know, you just have to learn to live with it. So just spend your time and energy on on that rather than hoping for the cure that will never come or something like that. You know, is that similar in the visual snow community? Yeah, most definitely. It's very similar. <laughs> right. So I think that resonates with me what Peter just said, because there isn't in that sense then one clear common message. Right. And we try to act as we, meaning the Visual Snow Initiative, we try to act as a liaison, right, from the people who have this to the medical community and the scientific community ultimately leading to research. But the reality is there are tons of groups, as you said, like, and there are support groups, communities, pages, where you can express yourself, uh, your personal feelings, as well as sh share theories about visual snow and get support. And they're all great and they offer different things. I, I totally see the power of in unity. Even if we're different entities, I would like to think we all have one common goal. Like there's there's no there's no agenda that we all have that isn't positive and in some way trying to help people, right? But it would be good if when we are approaching people and trying to pitch our concept, if you will, right? Pitching why visual snow is important, why it needs funding, why it needs research, if we have everything in order. And I do think it's tricky though. Like, wouldn't you say like with a condition like this, it's not just physical for a lot of people, it's very emotional. So they have a lot of passion sometimes when they speak, but I've had to myself learn how to tone down the emotion and be pragmatic and and when I speak and use my words wisely to like reach people, you know? Yeah, I'm not talking about censorship. Uh, I'll say that. Well, all I'm all I'm saying is that I think it's a recognized thing in advocacy that less messages get more action. Yeah, it's, if it's cohesive, for sure. And it, in a consensus, there's power in numbers. Yeah, exactly. The reality is, like, it's it sounds easy to marginalize the conditions we have. It sounds easy to just sideline them because, oh, well, there not many people have them. Well, as Peter said earlier, yeah, 2% might sound like nothing, but it, it's quite a lot in the scheme of that. But the thing is, we <laughs> we hear from people all the time, daily, thousands of emails, right? So you can tell me this condition is rare. You can tell me visual snow syndrome is a rare condition. It's uncommon. Not enough people experience it that it warrants uh, awareness and, you know, getting publicized, right? But when you're receiving thousands of emails every single day from children, right? From young people, from middle-aged people, from elderly people, regardless, all walks of life all over the world sharing the same stories. And while the majority, while the minority of them, yes, like many of them are comfortable, the majority of them, from what we've experienced at least, they are not comfortable and they are not happy. So how can you tell me when you're, like if you took those thousands of people and put them in a room with you, how can you tell me that that their words and their feelings, the, what they go through doesn't matter? You can't, you can't. I think this is why you're such a good advocate, Sierra. Yeah. Oh, shucks, thank you. Likewise, thanks. I don't know about that, but thanks, yeah. No, I think you're, yeah. I think uh, we should probably wrap up. Are there any topics that you guys have wanted to cover that we haven't touched on? No, I think we've. I think we touched on most of the things that I had on my had on my notes in front of me. All right, then I just want to thank you both so much for your time, 
and all the efforts you've made uh, the the audience might not know but we had to do multiple attempts before we could get a good recording and um yeah just really value your time and commitment and of of course also your time and commitment to the cause in general so thank you well thank you for taking an interest it's a pleasure yeah thank you so much for the opportunity to come on hazel and you guys are doing amazing work as well we're very impressed and glad to be collaborating with like-minded genuine people thanks